0: Uh, Two sides of the one coin. Have you heard that phrase? You know, it's where you're looking at one thing but from two very different angles. Uh, So, for example, you've got two teenagers uh, talking in the playground and one of them is complaining to the other about how strict their parents are. You know, that just because they came home half an hour late, now they're grounded for a month and it's all over the top and it's completely unfair. But then their friend says, well, yeah, it does sound a bit harsh, but at least it shows that your parents care for you. So they're both talking about the parents' discipline, but from two different perspectives, two sides of the one coin. Well, this morning we get the second side of the coin from last week. Last Sunday we were given a strong warning. Chapter 2 begins with words like, we must pay more careful attention so that we don't drift away. How will we escape if we ignore such a great Salvation. The side of the coin we were looking at was the the strong warning of missing out on God's great salvation. This week, the writer takes us to the flip side of that coin. This week, he puts before us why the salvation he speaks of is so great. From verse 5, it's the splendor of what's to come. It's the remarkable future that God's got in store. He spells out how God's salvation is so great so that of course we'll fix our thoughts on Jesus and hold fast in him. So let's have a look at this great salvation and why it is so splendid and worth persevering in Christ for. And the first thing we're told about it is that it involves a world to come. And that this world to come won't be ruled by angels. So chapter 2, verse 5. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. This great salvation that the writer's been speaking about is to do with a world to come. God's promise of a new creation, a glorious new world unspoiled by sin and death, and it will not be subjected to the angels. They won't rule over it. Yeah, angels are impressive creatures. We saw something of that last week. So you might expect the world to come to be given to them to rule, but no, turns out it was meant to be ruled by us. Verse 5 again. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking, but there is a place Where someone has testified, What is man that you are mindful of him? The Son of Man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honour and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. See, we're meant to rule the world this world and the world to come. At creation, God crowned us with glory and honour, the the glory and honour of having everything subject to us, as it says in verse 8. The world was placed under our feet. The glory and honour that God gave us is that we're meant to be ruling with God over the world. But that's not how it is, is it? Look at the end of verse 8. Yet, at present... We do not see everything subject to it. We don't see the world under man's control. In the here and now, we don't see humanity with everything subject to us. We've spun out of control. We've sinned against God and this world and us. We're now under God's judgment. And so instead of ruling the world, we're now subject to its frustration and futility. And we see this most starkly in the fact that we're dying. This world around us, it inflicts all manner of diseases upon us. Our bodies are decaying and passing. And as a human race, we march one by one into the grave. We're all members of this failed humanity. All of us under the judgment of God headed, all of us, to our own funerals. We see our loss of control over the world in many other ways as well, but most clearly in our slavery to death. The glory and honour of having the world subject to us, that glory and honour has been lost. However, there is a man who will rule the world. There is one man who regained what we lost. One man who does and who will rule the world, and his name is Jesus. At present, we don't see everything subject to humanity, but, verse 9, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honour. The glory and honour that man used to have at creation, the man Jesus has regained. He now has that honour. He's the ruler of the world to come. But his glory and honour is more than just that he'll rule the world to come. It's that through him, we will also be the rulers of the world to come. This is extraordinary because we're the ones who muffed this world. We're the ones who are wretched sinners. But what we lost, Jesus has regained and he's regained the honour of being the ruler of the world in such a way that means we will now also rule the world to come with him. Through Jesus, God is bringing us to that glory once more. Verse 9 again. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, Now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus is now crowned with glory and honor. In other words, he's the ruler of the world to come because we're told he tasted death for everyone. And by tasting death for everyone, Jesus can now bring many others to glory. The glory that he now has. He can bring others to share in the glory of ruling the world to come. Verse 10. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. See that there in verse 10? Through Jesus, God is bringing many sons to glory. Glory. What glory? Well, the glory that he's just been speaking of, the glory of ruling over the world to come. This is why our salvation is so great. And Jesus is said to be the author of our salvation in verse 10. In other words, he's the beginner of our salvation. It flows from him. It comes from him. He's the author of our salvation because it's by his death that we're being brought to the glory of God. Of ruling over the world to come with Him. So, can you see, it's not only that we're allowed to share in the world to come, we also get to play a starring part. Even though we completely muffed this world, in Christ, God is bringing us to rule over His world to come right alongside none other than God the Son Himself. Now, you might be sitting there in You don't feel that significant. You know, you mightn't think you're all that much. Seriously, going to rule the world to come with Jesus. It is all too easy, isn't it, to look on our lives and feel small and weak. And as we get older, we just get weaker. Our bodies start to seize up. Our minds get slower. There's things we used to be able to do. We forget things, sometimes lots of things. Our sin still taunts us and we die. How could we possibly dare to even think that the glorious eternal Son would share his throne with us? This is the ultimate ugly duckling story, isn't it? Now, we are weak, dying, and sinful, undeserving, rebellious, filthy, sinful wretches, but one day we'll rule. Right alongside God the Son in the world to come? Yes, we will. By the grace of God, through Jesus Himself and His death for us. And this is such a big idea. If you've got a headache, so have I. Such a big point. It's such a rich and wonderful truth that what the writer does now is he spends the rest of chapter two spelling out how it works how it is that Jesus and his death brings us to glory. And essentially it's this. First, he had to come down from on high. He had to leave his glory in heaven. He had to come down to our level, meet us where we're at, so that then and only then could he lift us up. So how is it that Jesus and his death can bring us to the glory of ruling the world to come? Well, firstly, it's because Jesus became one of us. So chapter 2, verse 11. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. The writer then quotes some cracking Old Testament passages. We haven't got time to look them up, but it's well worth the read. But his point is, look at verse 14, his point is, Verse 14, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. Now remember, we're talking about the son here. The majestic son of chapter 1. The maker, owner, sustainer and ruler of all creation. God, the son. And in faithfulness to the father's plan to bring many sons to glory, the son came down. He stooped low, leaving the glory of heaven to share in our humanity. More than that, back in verse 11, he's not ashamed to call us brothers. Did you catch that? If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, then God the Son is your brother. I don't know if you've ever had a big brother. I've got two. They're both fantastic men. But seriously, our big brother is none other than God the Son, Jesus. In order to bring us to glory, he came down and willingly became one of us. And we're not an embarrassment to him. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. But even more than that. In faithfulness to God's plan for us, the reason he became one of us was to die for us. Verse 14 again, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. See, Jesus came down to be one of us so that he could die. But he doesn't have to die. He's God the Son. But such is his commitment to us and to the Father that he even died for us to set us free from our slavery to death. Have you ever met someone who's afraid of dying? Maybe you are. Our society doesn't want to talk about death, do they? You know, raise the topic of death. uh, That's a very quick way to kill a conversation at a barbecue or around work because death scares the socks off most people. Our cultures run away from God, and so the idea of having certainty after death, that's long gone, which just leaves us with the unknown, the great unknown. Most people assume that there is something after death, but without certainty... Seriously, we die, and then what? Most people believe in a God of some description, you know, so we're going to have to answer to someone, but how do I know if I'll be all right with God? I know I'm not perfect, but how good do I have to be? How do you get in the good books? What if God's angry with me? What then? Seriously, I could have God rain down on me in fury? Our sin means death is a terrifying prospect. Our sin and death mean there's no way we're even going to the world to come, let alone sharing in the rule of it. But this is why Jesus came down to be one of us, so that he could die for us to set us free from our slavery to the fear of death. Because he died for us to die for our sins, to turn aside the Father's anger against us. Jesus died to take the judgment we deserve. So that we could rightly be made into God's dearly loved children. By dealing with our sins in his death, Jesus then removes the fear of death. And he brings us to the father with the glory of now being able to share in the rule of the world to come with Jesus. Verse 17. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Now Jesus is, in that verse is said to be our priest and in a couple of weeks we'll be in chapter 5 and that's all about Jesus being our priest so we'll save that for then. But as our priest, verse 17, he makes atonement for the sins of the people. The word used there is the word for turning aside someone's anger. Jesus died for us to turn aside God's anger at our sin. It's as if when Jesus died, there was a a huge magnifying glass over him. You know how a magnifying glass can uh, focus all the rays of the sun into one point? You know, little kids use this to terrorise ants. Hopefully you didn't do that. Well, when Jesus died... God's anger at the sin of the world was poured out. But it was focused on one point, on the one man, right on Jesus. He absorbed the Father's anger at our sin. He died for us. So that the Father would no longer be angry with us. So that our sins would be removed. So that there's now nothing between us and God. No issues that need resolving. No offences that need dealing with. No sins to pay for. Because by his death... Jesus has turned aside the Father's anger against our sin. And so he has set us free from the slavery of the fear of death. He's destroyed the power of the devil. And so because of Jesus and his death, there is now nothing in the road of us becoming the sons of God. This is how... Through Christ, God is bringing many sons to glory, bringing us to rule together. Even with Jesus, who is now our brother, we will rule the world to come with him. There's a lot in these verses, I know. And it keeps going into chapter 3, emphasizing Jesus' faithfulness to God's plan. And I'll leave you to read those first six verses for yourself. But look, here's the big picture, okay? Okay. In summary, what are we to walk away with this morning? God's great salvation of us is that despite our sin, we will rule the world to come with Jesus because he came down to die for our sins so that he could raise us up with him to glory. This is where God's taking us. This is the great salvation that God has won for us. And so where does that leave us in the here and now? What difference is this to make to our lives today? Well, we are to fix our thoughts on Jesus. We're to keep our vision set upon the one who has made it all possible. Chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. Through Jesus we share in the heavenly calling, and so we're to fix our thoughts on him. And notice that it's not that we're to fix our thoughts on our great salvation. The writer isn't urging us, to keep looking to the future that God has in store for us so that we'll keep following Jesus. No, he urges us to keep looking to Christ himself so that we'll keep following him into the world to come. We're to fix our thoughts on Jesus. And it's a great reminder, isn't it? Because there is so much in this world that can take our attention away from him. Many things that can distract us even put us in danger of drifting away from him. Later in the book of Hebrews, the writer tackles three of these things head on. Three things that can keep us from fixing our thoughts on Jesus. So we're going to briefly look at each one. And we're going to think about how fixing our thoughts on Jesus will keep us following him even in the face of these three things. The first one is the love of money. And that can be a powerful distraction, can't it? Have you got money issues at the moment? You know, you might have lots of money. And your issues are you're trying to work out where to to invest it or where to save it or how much to spend or to give away. Or you might only have a little bit of money. And you're wondering how you're going to make ends meet. You might be trying to plan for kids' futures. There's always some pull on our wallets. And our culture, it seems to have a seemingly endless lust for more money, always greedy for more. And it can be easy to get swept up in its tidal wave of pressure. But instead, where to fix our thoughts on Jesus. And that'll set us right in all this. Because when we fix our thoughts on Jesus, we'll remember that for our sakes... Jesus left the glory and the wealth of his rightful place in heaven. He left it all behind to take on flesh and blood, to become poor for us, to become our brother. And so what could all the money in the world possibly offer me to compete with him? Whatever your money issues are right now, Fix your thoughts on Jesus. The second issue we'll think about is persecution. And this one gets a lot of airtime in the book of Hebrews. And when, when trouble comes your way because you follow Jesus, it can be tempting, can't it, to just duck for cover, you know, try and lay low, fly under the radar. And the longer people tease you and attack you and exclude you and fire you for following Christ, the more that happens, the more tempting it is, To just toss Jesus in. It would certainly make life a lot easier. But if we're fixing our thoughts on Jesus. Instead of on our troubles. We'll think very differently. Because we'll remember that God the son. He didn't just come down to become one of us. He took on flesh to die for us. To set us free from our slavery. To the fear of death. And so we won't fear people. Because the worst they can do is kill us. And we're not afraid of death anymore. Let alone being afraid of loss of friends or job or possessions or opportunities. We're not afraid of losing these things because our gaze is fixed on Jesus, the one who died for us. And the last issue the writer raises later in the letter that we'll think about now is sexual temptation. So when someone pays you unwarranted special attention or you find yourself giving someone attention that you shouldn't be, when the seeds of so-called harmless flirting are being sown, when that man or woman, that boy or girl, when they lure you into their exciting little world, when the images on the internet or in the magazines call you for just one quick look, Brothers and sisters, when the sin of sexual immorality tries to seduce you, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Because not only did he come down to become one of us, not only did he then die for us, but he died for our sin. He died under the Father's wrath. And so fix your thoughts on the cross and see where sin leads. And see what Jesus did to save you from your sin. Look upon your big brother and what he did for you and then try and tell him you want to sin some more. Brothers and sisters, we've been given such a great salvation through the great Lord Jesus. God is bringing us to glory the glory of ruling alongside God the Son himself and the world to come, but it is only through Christ and so therefore holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling fix your thoughts on Jesus let's pray. Father, your great salvation of us is so clearly something we do not deserve. We know it is only by your grace, by you treating us not how we deserve. Father, that you would even send your son to become one of us, to become our brother by his death for our sin. Father, that we could be in the world to come and to share with your son, in ruling it, it's too much to take in. Father, we praise you for your plans and your power and your mercy and your kindness. And we beg you, please, for help and strength that, Father, we will fix our thoughts on your son and so gladly live for him and wait for him. And that, Father, you would take us to glory. And, Father, we pray it That in our lives here and forever, we will bring you great honour and great pleasure. And we pray it through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.